Let every person be subject to governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the evildoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed. Taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. So reads God's word. Romans 13 is one of those iconic passages is oftentimes referred to even by those who don't know the Lord or those who don't have any particular appetite for his word. It's one of those iconic passages that tells people how to think about their relationship with, with some particular part of this world in a unique and specific way. And it's no mystery, having just read it, that in this case, government is the particular part of this world that's in the crosshairs. Without Romans 13, it would be very difficult to know how believers in Christ should relate to government. And especially, we might say, to immoral or unprincipled governments, to governing authorities that handle their citizens in ways that require things of them that are contrary to God's word. How do we think about such things? We are, after all, are we not, in the new age of Christ? The old age of Adam is gone. We, we still feel the sinful weight of our own rejection of God, even if it's been cleansed and forgiven by Christ. We still have that battle within us to, to, to live under the banner of Christ, to live into the kingdom of God, even while we still live in the kingdoms of this world. Wouldn't Godless government be one of those things we would naturally lay aside in demonstration of our allegiance to a new world order, a coming kingdom that's perfect in righteousness and holiness and has a government that is sinlessly pure? It's a challenging question. And what do we do with earthly governments that don't reflect that righteousness and holiness. So it would be very difficult to know how believers in Christ should relate to government, especially immoral or unprincipled governments, apart from the contribution that is made in Romans 13. 
But it wouldn't be impossible because this isn't the only place in the New Testament where we read about this relationship between Christians and government. Peter wrote pretty specifically to this topic as well and in a way that's really quite complementary to what we read from Paul here in Romans 13 touching on several of the same subjects. Peter wrote, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. You hear the similar themes? Verse 15 from 1 Peter 2. For this is the will of God that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. That is one of my favorite verses in all of the New Testament. It is God's will. We don't always know what God's will is, but here it is. It is God's will that by doing good, there's the key phrase that keeps it from just being a, joke, a, a, a verse that you chuckle at. It is God's will that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. I'm not going to preach on that verse this morning, but I'm tempted to do so spontaneously even at the moment. We'll let that go, though, as part of Peter's instruction on how Christians relate to government. Verse 16, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Think what Peter is meaning there, not using your freedom to indulge sinful desire, which is so often how our freedoms are used. But living as servants of God, So our freedom in Christ is somehow expressed out in the world by how we relate to government differently than this world does. Finally, continuing on with resonant themes from Romans 13, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Nero was the emperor when Peter wrote this instruction. Also, when Paul wrote his. So the New Testament is not silent on this subject, apart from Romans 13. Jesus also taught his followers to pay taxes, a theme that's in this very text of Romans 13. Jesus taught his followers to pay taxes in that encounter where the supporters of the Pharisees and of Herod were trying to entrap him. They pose the question, does your leader pay taxes? Matthew 22, verse 18, but Jesus, aware of their malice, said, why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me a coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, whose likeness is inscription? An inscription is this. And they said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, therefore render to Caesar's, Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. One of the most amazing statements from Jesus anywhere in the New Testament when evaluated from the perspective of all people. Believers just resonate with this as one more thing Jesus has said. Unbelievers out in the world are amazed at this statement and this comeback just as those who heard it on that day were amazed. 
This instruction that Jesus is giving goes well beyond paying of taxes to include all sorts of expressions of submission to governing authorities that ought to be honored by Christians. Paul gets at it in the closing verses of, of the closing verse of this text that we have before us. Show respect to whom respect is due. Honor to whom honor is due. Jesus insinuates that by the way he's, asked, he's answered this question about taxes. Paul also urged prayer for government as he wrote to Timothy who was serving in Ephesus. 1 Timothy 2. I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and for all who are in high positions that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way, that we might use our freedoms for God's glory. We pray for our governing officials toward that end. Toward the end of a fruitful gospel outcome and gospel living among the church. This is good, Paul wrote to Timothy, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. It's pleasing in the sight of God when we intercede on behalf of the leaders of our nation. That's New Testament. How about old? Jeremiah said essentially the same thing from a somewhat different angle as he wrote to the exiles. In Jeremiah 29, verse 7, Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, Babylon. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare you will find your welfare. Life in a fallen world. Believers under godless government. Instituted by God though it is. How do we respond? So God's people living faithfully and prayerfully under the authority even of a godless government isn't just a New Testament context. It's, it, it, concept. It, it's always been so. The faithful remnant in exile is called by God to pray for their leaders in response to their rule. So when we come to Romans 13, we're on significant ground, but we're not on unprecedented ground. The proper disposition of God's people toward government in this world is well attested in His Word. And it's challenging to process. Still, it's not entirely easy to see why Paul goes here next in Romans, right on the heels of chapter 12, verses 9 to 21, or even the whole of chapter 12, verses 1 to 21. It's not easy to understand why Paul goes here next, especially when it seems like verses 8 through 14 here in chapter 13 follow very well on the heels of chapter 12. It's a continuous thought. It, 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 it's linked. And in between is this instruction about government. But Paul's primary reason for doing so seems to be to make sure that his readers know that his call not to be conformed to this world 
doesn't give them license to resist governing authorities. Or, more particularly, to refuse to pay taxes, perhaps. Which is one of the primary ways that, according to God's word, we display our submission to those who are in authority. Part of transformed living, then, is exemplary submission to government. Can I say that again? Part of transformed living is exemplary submission to government. Standing apart from this world in the way that we respond to human government. And submitting to human government as a God-established institution through which God's own ultimate judging authority, referred to back in verse 19 of chapter 12, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says, says the Lord. That theme does continue on. And textually, that might be the reason why Paul put it here. There is a manifestation of God's vengeance and judgment in this world, and Paul is saying it's attached to human government. So there's a link. But, to start that statement again, part of transformed living is exemplary submission to government as a God-established institution through which God's own ultimate judging authority has manifestation in this present world order. That's how Paul talks about it as being established here. What it's for. It's a God-established institution through which his own ultimate judging authority has manifestation in this present world order. But it could still remain unclear why Paul goes on here next in Romans 13. On that, though, John Stott, I think, gives us some great help in summarizing what we see in chapter 12 into chapter 13. In Romans 12, he wrote, Paul has developed our four basic Christian relationships, namely to God in verses 1 and 2, to ourselves, how to think of ourselves in verses 3 through 8, to one another in verses 9 to 16, and to our enemies in verses 17 to 21. In Romans 13, he develops three more along the same trajectory. To the state, conscientious citizenship, he says, in verses 1 to 7. To the law, namely, loving neighbor as self and its fulfillment, verses 8 through 10. And then to the day of the Lord's return, living in the already not yet of verses 11 to 14. So there we can see a unity that we can appreciate and understand. All of this said, though, it's just set up for digging into the first seven verses of Romans 13. So with this, let's, let's dig into these verses and understand better the connection between submitting to government and transformed living in this world. That's the real essence of what we're doing. The core is to understand the connection between submitting to government and transformed living in this world to the point where transformed living expresses itself, at least in part, by submission to government. This connection comes in two very unequal parts. We'll look at verses 1 through 6, and it'll actually be divided about that way, about that percentage. Um, six verses, we'll give six verses of attention to it, and then verse 7 actually is point 2. So the first is understanding transformed living in this world. That's the first six verses, and then modeling transformed living in this world, what it looks like to live it out. Right? 
So let's walk through this, and again, because it's divided in that way, I won't make a big deal out of the outline, but let's walk through this text and understand a bit about human government and our relationship to it. The general principle, we might call it, uh, the general principle here is, is, is stated in verse 1, the first half of verse 1, and then it has a primary rationale in the second part of verse 1. And that's kind of matched by a general call down in verse 7, all right? So you get the principle right at the opening of the passage, verse 1, and then you get the call or the charge that comes from that as the closing. And in between, Paul just unpacks this thought, this general principle and its implications for us. So principle, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Here's the topic sentence. There's what we're going to be covering for the rest of the morning. Rationale, why should every person be subject to the governing authorities? For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. God is behind the presence of all authority structures in this world. He created this world. And he created us in the way that we are, the point where we need and rely on authority structures even to know how to live decently and in order. We're made that way. And what he's saying here is that human government is a manifestation of God's plan and purpose for this world, how he wants it to play out. God is behind the presence of all authority structures in this world, and that includes we might say, because the language requires us to at least nod in this direction, that includes angelic beings, both good and evil. As we learn most clearly from the prophet Daniel and also in the book of Revelation, that these beings are also called authorities by Paul. And so whenever you're handling this word authority, you've got to take a moment to, to clarify what you're talking about exactly. And that's a genuine possibility. Angels and demons... These beings are called authorities by Paul in, in a number of places, especially Ephesians and Colossians. And they're involved in the rule of nations. We can see that from Daniel chapter 10. But here, almost certainly, Paul is speaking exclusively of human government. Context just establishes that as you continue. He's not talking about spiritual warfare and engagement here. He's talking about a relationship between human beings and the governments that oversee them. We might say, therefore, that God creates space for himself in the minds and hearts of his image-bearing creatures by building an accountability to authority into this world. He builds an accountability to authority into this world order that exemplifies his rule and embodies it even in some ways, verse 4. And while the most strategically God-exalting authority structure might be marriage and family, illustrating the relationship between God and his people, or even the structures within the church, there's a hierarchical structure there. The same word, be subject to or submit to, is used with regard to church authority. Surely the most commonly experienced human authority structure is government. 
Because even to an orphan born in this world that never knows family or family structures, that individual still lives under the authority of government for all the days of his life. That government authority structure is so closely aligned with God then that verse 2, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist it will incur judgment. It's amazingly strong. We need to let this passage stand. I'll tell you in advance, lest as we talk through this, our ears get deadened to the fact that, wow, has God invested great authority in human governments. We'll talk about some principles as we finish this morning. But we need to let this text stand and say what it says because we need to hear it. Whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed and those who resist it will incur judgment. Now ultimately I believe this points to eternal judgment as one commentator wrote. Those who persistently oppose secular rulers and hence the will of God will suffer condemnation for that opposition. But Paul seems to be saying more than just that. More than just in the end times, in the last day, we will feel judgment from God by the way that we responded to human government. Paul seems to be saying more than that. Even in the immediate response to resistance that comes from the governing authorities themselves is an expression of God's judgment. The immediate response to resistance that comes from the governing authorities themselves, Paul says here, is an expression of God's judgment. The judgment inflicted by rulers and authorities is in the foreground, wrote another commentator. And it's an expression from God. Verse 3, for rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant. you know what that word is? Diakonos. He is God's deacon. It's an amazing statement. He's, God, he's God's minister. Wow. This is a surprising text. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the evildoer, on the wrongdoer. There it is, quite clearly stated. Now, some, many, in fact, want to ask as soon as they hear that, how far does this go? At what point do we stop submitting to the governing authorities and start resisting them? I've been asked that question in this body. Not all that long past. We were all asking questions like that from 2020 through 2021, right? At what point do we stop submitting to the governing authorities and start resisting them? Surely there's a line between the two however blurry and inexact it might be, and surely, therefore, that line can be crossed. 
So we all want to know what we're supposed to do when we see that lion approaching. And an increasing number of us want to ask, what are we supposed to do if we believe the line has already been crossed? And I would say to us that there are no easy answers to that question or to those questions. And surely there are no formulaic answers to those questions. No sound bites, no, no bumper sticker quips that can answer those questions. But I do believe there are some answers we can offer if we reason by analogy from other areas where we're called by Scripture to be subject to some authority. I've spoken at many marriage conferences and retreats over the years, and one of the questions that routinely arises is how far does this submission thing go? Same word. At what point does a wife not have to be subject to her husband any longer? Where it's right and best even to resist, to assert her unwillingness. Surely if her husband is requiring something illegal, right? God wouldn't want her to be subject to him any longer, right? The same question can arise in the church in response to our call to be subject to the elders. What do I do when I see them going a direction that I don't think is warranted by God's word? How do I respond? However such questions are best answered, we must grant first that we can only answer them for our own government with regard to what we're reading here in Romans 13. The temptation is immediately to go to other governments throughout the world and throughout history to pose hypothetical questions that put in front of us unwinnable dilemma that still requires some sort of answer. And submitting to government seems ludicrous at that point in those hypotheticals. So we have to grant first that with regard to government, we can only answer this with regard to our own government. Then we must grant a principle that is as close as I'm going to get to a soundbite. It's never best to begin challenging, to begin a challenging course of obedience to God's word by asking, how long do we have to keep it up before we can disobey? Okay? I appreciate your chuckle this morning. Your chuckle this morning makes me feel a whole lot better about what I have to share with you today. <laughs> I'm glad you see that. Many don't. Praise God that we do. That's his spirit at work among us. It is never best to begin a challenging course of obedience to God's word by asking, how long do we have to keep it up before we can disobey? And make no mistake, folks, this is a challenging charge from God's word here in Romans 13. To follow up on that, though, in other words, we, we, we need to see that the question itself is rather wrong-headed. How far do we have to go before we can disobey? There's something wrong with the question itself. And that's what we need to see. God is telling us something here in this text. 
It's a general guiding principle, and it's for our good. We have to start there. We're called to live in subjection to the governing authorities in our day, seeing and knowing and now learning how they're instituted by God, how they're manifestations of His authority, how they're expressive of His judgment, and therefore reminders of His present and coming reign, His, his now and not yet kingdom. We see it as that. We see it in that context. We start processing it in that way. We think about it in those terms rather than the inconvenience or the, the, the uncomfortability that I'm feeling in my response to government from my own fallen human heart. We see it in the categories in which God has presented it here and that's where we begin. Submitting to government is part of what happens in us as we're transformed by the renewal of our minds. It's part of the way that we show a Christian difference in this world. This vision needs to take hold of our minds and hearts, and I would say even our imaginations. Because, verse 5, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but for the sake of conscience should be a matter of principle in our hearts that we model something different. We need to have a growing sense of conviction that we ought to be exhibiting this disposition toward government as part of what it means to follow Jesus. That needs to be there before we can begin critiquing government. It starts at home. It starts by assessing our own hearts and whether we can truly embrace the authority and the instruction of the Word of God. And if we have a growing concern for our governing authorities, even in the midst of such assessment, as though they're not exercising their authority in an appropriately God-honoring way, we should feel led by conscience to respond in just the way a godly wife would as she begins to see questionable behavior in her husband. Or a godly church member as he sees a similar sort of thing in his elders. We do just what Paul told Timothy that should happen there in Ephesus. We would pray. There's our answer. And we'd pray again. We'd offer all kinds of prayers. Right there in the text of 1 Timothy 2. Supplications and prayers and intercessions and even thanksgivings. For kings and all who are in high positions, understanding that this is how God in his word has purposed that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. We'd recognize that this is good and it's pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. We'd follow the leading of Jesus 
who knew just what it was like to live under the rule of a self-righteous human authority. He knew just what it was like to live under a fallen human government. We'd imitate him now in the language of 1 Peter 2. We'd imitate him for to this we have been called, verse 21. Because Christ also suffered for us. Leaving us an example so that we might follow in his steps. Verse 23 when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. The king of kings. But he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He did just what Paul instructed Timothy to do. Called out to God in the midst of the suffering. He continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He continued calling out to God. He stayed the course. And he stayed the course all the way to the cross. The greatest travesty of justice in human history and the greatest manifestation of love and cleansing and sacrifice in human history. He recognized that more was going on than mere oppression. So he stayed the course all the way to the cross in order to provide salvation for all who believe. The point? Jesus calling out to God under the persecution of human government didn't save him from feeling that persecution. Escaping or getting out from under the persecution isn't the call of the believer. And Jesus modeled that with clarity in his own life. So persecution of human government isn't the thing to avoid, and Jesus shows us, but it did. His experience result in the perfect will of God being accomplished. And the persecution of a human government was the way it was carried out. It resulted in the perfect will of God, which in turn provided for our salvation. Escaping persecution is not always the highest aim. Our salvation resulted from the opposite. So the question must be asked, have we, have we learned our lesson regarding how to hear the word of God when it calls us to an expression of obedience that seems hard or questionable or potentially compromising? Do we craft moralistic hypotheticals in a vain attempt to point out the weakness or the, the limitation or the flaws in the command itself? A lot of times that is the course we follow. We craft scenarios that help us see how we don't need to do this. God help us. Or do we follow Jesus' example? Do we walk in his steps? Do we leave vengeance to God and entrust ourselves to him who judges justly? My friends, the answer should be clear. 
And I would say, to borrow the language of the text, our consciences should press us toward that. And verse 6, interesting construction here. Our paying of taxes to the government expresses the conviction of our conscience regarding the role that governing authorities play in our lives. Namely, that they're, they're ministers of God. That's one of the ways we acknowledge that. And we recognize that in good conscience, tax evasion isn't the approach of a believer. How is that? How is that? It's a godless government, right? It's doing things we don't approve of. Why is it that our conscience presses us toward conformity in this piece, in this place? It's because God's Word teaches it. It teaches it pretty clearly. And Paul puts it here in front of us in an undeniably clear way. Our paying of taxes to the government expresses the conviction of our conscience regarding the role governing authorities play in our lives as ministers of God. Verse 6, For because of this, we read, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers, different word this time, governing authorities, uh, representatives, right? different from back in verse 4, where it was diakonos. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God, agents of God, attending to this very thing. You know, one of the clearest interpretations of this is that Collecting and stewarding taxes is one of the ways that human government is a servant of God. That one's hard to swallow, all right? There are other ways to understand this as well. To the, the fact that attending this very thing means more than just the collecting of taxes. It means the approving of good, the restraining of evil, uh, doing all of the things that this passage says that government is supposed to do. But the most immediate and clear answer is that by the mere act of collecting taxes, the governing authorities are doing God's work. That's, a, that's an amazing thing to at least acknowledge, although I do believe it includes the whole passage. Moving on to point two. <laughs> and we'll take just a couple of minutes with this. It leads us into the final verse this morning and the bottom line charge in this passage, as one commentator called it, the general call for submission. We're putting this under the heading of now modeling transformed living in this world. We've, we've pressed to understand it and now we're modeling it. Verse 7, pay to all what is owed them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. It's really interesting to note, and we'll pick up on this next week as we move into verses 8 and following, God willing. The very next statement is, owe no one anything. I love that. that, that what Paul is doing here, putting tension between things, actually is part of what clarifies it. So, we're going to speak now for these next few minutes in the clarity that comes from applying verse 8 to verse 7 and how the word O is used there, but, but we're not going to talk about verse 8 until next Sunday, God willing. Pay to all what is owed. Taxes, revenue, respect, honor. And all of this, I would say, in context, is aimed at the governing authorities. The governing authorities are the recipients of all four of these things that are paid 
in verse 7. By God's sovereign decree and according to his word, our governing authorities are due. They're owed our taxes, our revenue, that's just indirect taxes, things like sales tax and tolls and things like that. So not direct taxes of property or, or whatever, but actual add-on type taxes, revenue. They're due our respect, they're due our honor. By God's sovereign decree and according to his word, our governing authorities are due taxes and revenue and respect and honor. This, paying that debt, is part of what it looks like to live a transformed life in Christ. This is what it looks like to be a Christian. It can challenge us. It can cause us to feel uncomfortable. It, it can even cause us to feel mistreated. But our appeal is to God at such times by the instruction of his own word. And that doesn't mean silence in this world. Understand that. Saying that our first response is to appeal to God, to pray for our governing authorities, isn't to say that we're supposed to just keep quiet in this world. As I said, we can only deal with our own government. Our government gives us a voice to express our disagreement. And even our protest. It gives us the freedom to vote and even to campaign and to debate and to lobby. We have all of those freedoms. And we should use those freedoms well. This isn't a call to muted silence. It's a call to uniquely Christian living. Our disposition should be to recognize government for what it is as an institution appointed by God worthy of a God-enabled respect and honor. And our response to any perceived injustice or impropriety should first and foremost be to the king of kings, to the God of all governments. It should be to call out to God on behalf of his servants. They're just servants. And at this point, the meaning of that word has a wholly different connotation. They're just servants. Go to the top if you've got a concern and trust that it actually is the top. There's our problem. We often don't believe that that's the top. That's a heart problem. That is not a government problem. God help us. Now having said all this, I must add that Paul hasn't given a fully developed theology of government here, but just a general principle, a general principle that governs the life of believers in this world. Regarding how we should understand human government, and generally how we should respond to it. He hasn't given us specific direction about how to react when government goes painfully awry. We don't need any example other than 1930s Germany to recognize how that can happen. But Paul did know that a human government 
sanctioned and perpetrated the crucifixion of Jesus. So he knew that governments could go awry. He wasn't clueless to the fact that this institution is capable of grave miscarriages of justice. He knew that as he wrote this passage. So we don't get away from this text by citing examples in human history that have happened since then. Paul understood the failings of human government, but he also knew, as one commentator has written, that even oppressive governments, by their very nature, seek to prevent the evils of indiscriminate murder or riot, thievery, as well as general instability and chaos and good acts do at times meet with the approval and praise. Now, folks, we can all think of examples that are contrary to that summary, but in essence, that summary is pretty true. So the aim here is not to oversimplify an admittedly complex subject. The aim here is to understand what Paul has taught, and we're going to summarize that in essentially four ways. Four things that I think could be helpful to come away with in order to appreciate what Paul is saying here. First, we cannot and must not dismiss the fact that human government has been instituted by God and must be respected and honored as appointed by him to accomplish his ends. You've got to begin there. This is God's work. Second, we must grant that human government is just as fallen as the rest of this world. So it will reflect that fallenness in as many and varied ways as the rest of us fallen sinners and the institutions we participate in reflect it. That is a truth. It's going to happen. So perfection is not the aim. There will be one righteous ruler in the history of this world and he has not yet ascended the throne fully and finally. He is on the throne. But there's a now and not yet to our faith. And the not yet is a really painful place to live. Third, suffering of all sorts, even under a sinful government, is used by God to shape his people in the likeness of his son. It's used to accomplish his good. We have to remember that for our brothers and sisters that live under oppressive governments in this world. And the simplest and clearest way to put it is that we need to keep in mind the work that that does. So often we envy the depth of faith that's present in the persecuted church, right? That's why persecution brought it about. It doesn't excuse the persecutors. We know clearly from God's word that every act of persecution they perpetrate will come back on them in judgment. God isn't winking at this. What we have to recognize, and this is so important and it's not written on a slide, Romans 13 has to be true for the believers in North Korea, the believers in Eritrea, the believers in Nigeria. It's got to be true for them too. So however we understand it, we can't hijack this passage to make it mean the things that we would like it to mean. That's hard in both directions. How is it possible that governments in the nations like that ones I just mentioned, that their governments are appointed by God? 
Oh, my friends, don't go there. How is it possible that he uses any one of us? So that's number three. Number four, therefore, God's people are far better off calling out to him under the weight of sinful government and trusting him to work in his unmistakable ways to accomplish his good than we are to take matters into our own hands as is usually the alternative. That is not our calling. And that will not enjoy the blessing of God in any manifestation taking matters into our own hands. Am I clear on that? I don't want to go farther down that road. But I want us to hear that. So this, my friends, this is how Christians should understand respond to, relate to human government in this world as best I understand it from Romans 13. May God use his word to fill in the gaps in my own fallen perspective and in each of ours because it is a challenging text. But I would say that this is what it looks like to live as citizens once we've been transformed by the renewal of our minds. So I finish with a question today. Can we do it? Can we do it? Rhetorical question. Let's take a moment in silent prayer to answer. And then I will lead us in prayer. And as I begin leading, those who are leading in worship or serving communion, please join me at the front. But take a moment now in silent prayer of response. Heavenly Father, our time of response has been all too brief, but I pray that on this important matter, your spirit would bring it back to mind and to the hearts of each one here as we seek to honor you in the way we respond to government and to governing authorities. And Father, I pray that you would use this passage of Scripture to unite your church toward an expression of witness that amazes this world. It may frustrate them in some ways as well. But Father, I pray that the distinction between your people saved by grace and the people of this world to the government under which they live would be notable to the praise of your glory and toward the proclamation of the gospel of your kingdom. It's the name of our King, your Son, our Savior, that we pray. Amen.